Welcome to Corns Baptist Church this morning. We are here to worship the living God. We want to read to you this morning from Psalm 44, which says, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. In God we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. That's why we're here this morning. We hope that's why you're here today, to worship the living God and give thanks to him. With that being said, we're going to continue in worship with him today. Uh, Let me pray for us, and we'll continue to sing our praises. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us beyond compare. Thank you for rescuing us from our sin. Thank you for drawing us to this place this morning. We pray that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths would speak. And ours would be words of joy. Ours would be words of rescue. Ours would be words of deliverance and redemption. Lead us as we sing. Lead us in your word, Father. May you get all the glory for what happens in this place today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Before we get into the Word today, though, we uh, have a a special announcement. This is the time of year when we uh, participate in a a special ministry called uh, Operation Christmas Child uh, through Franklin Graham's organization, uh, Samaritan's Purse. Uh, We take something as ordinary as a shoebox and fill it with gifts. Uh, that a child somewhere in the world will receive. Uh, along with those gifts comes the message of the gospel in powerful ways. And we're, we're thankful for how a simple gift uh, can radically transform and change lives. And so uh, Martha Cashman is going to come for just a minute and, and share with you guys a little bit more about this ministry and how you can be involved in it, whether it's making a shoebox or giving toward this effort. Um, so I'll let, I'll let her share with you about that. Okay, first of all, I just want to say the songs we just sang there, Greatest Our Lord, that's what this is all about because we want to share this with kids around the world and, and then their families because it will ripple on. So anyway, uh, we've been doing this here for 10 years or more now. So most of you know the do's and don'ts for making the boxes. And if you are new at it or just want to give money today so we can go shopping, for those of you who can't or just don't have the time or don't find it easy, whatever, to uh, make the boxes, uh, I'll be in the back back there, and we're going to take the youth and go shopping and um, buy some things. And um, for those of you uh, who don't make their boxes, or who, how will I put this, who don't, you're missing out on a real blessing because it's a lot of fun and it's an uplifting event, but it gives you um, a chance to fulfill God's command of go and tell. So if you go shopping, or even just give us money to help go shopping. These boxes are going around the world to tell about Jesus. But if you go shopping, um, I just ask that you, when you buy things, uh, now I I use the Dollar Store and the Dollar Tree, and they have great things, but you do sometimes have to be discerning because we don't want to give gifts that are going to break just as soon as they put a little headband on or something like that. Our God is a quality God, and he doesn't disappoint, and he brings joy And when these kids receive these boxes, they're feeling excitement and joy, and I hate for them to be really disappointed just the first time that they use something. So just think about that when you're packing the boxes. Um, Let me see what else. Um, Also, uh, we pass out prayer cards, and if you would keep one of those in your Bible all year uh, or on the side of the refrigerator to help you think about this and to pray for these, this project as it goes along the year. These boxes are not going to be delivered by Christmas. That's logistically impossible. But they are stored in a warehouse somewhere, and then uh, when Samaritan's Purse sends uh, mission teams around the world during the summer and things like that, they go and they take these to the kids in those villages. Or uh, if there are crises in countries that come up, and we are certainly experiencing those a lot on the news, um, Samaritan's Purse does move in and take those at that point. This is a wonderful project, and it's just really close to my heart. And um, I just wish that you all would really get involved with it. And let's, let's break this number. We have never quite reached 150, and I think this is 10 years. It's time, okay? Thank you all very much. Thanks, Martha. 
As we participate in this ministry, I think we're also reminding ourselves that most believers in the world today don't experience the Christian life to be nearly as easy as we have it. The most difficult days in American Christianity pale in comparison to what believers in Iraq experience today on their best days. I want to share a letter with you that we received this week from the International Mission Board. We support this organization and over 5,000 missionaries around the world uh, through the International Mission Board. And I wanted to share this letter that we received this week. It speaks about a man named Armand and his wife, Rana. Dear friends, Armand's family is active in the Taliban. He, his wife, and their two children are the only Christians in their family. One night, Armand's uncle came into their home with a group of men carrying large weapons. Armand's uncle found the family's Bibles and ripped out the pages one by one. We will be back in the morning, the uncle said, and if you have not returned to Islam, we will kill you all. Armand and his wife, Rana, packed a few possessions into two plastic grocery bags and fled their home. Over the next several days, they made their way, sometimes on foot, sometimes catching rides, and often carrying their children through three Central Asian countries, covering more than 1,800 miles and crossing three national borders. The first time Rana came to Bible study, she didn't understand a word, says Olivia Harrison, an IMB worker in the city where the family resettled in Central Asia. She simply sat quietly with a smile on her face and her Bible in her lap. Rana and Olivia grew to be close friends. Their families shared meals together, visited in each other's homes, and spent days just hanging out. They became like family. Armand and Rana's Rana, situation became more difficult a few months ago. Please do not visit me anymore, Rana told Olivia. My brother is telling everyone that when he finds us, he will cut off our heads one by one. Armand and Rana decided to seek refuge in Europe. Although they were literally running for their lives, they felt the Lord showing them his path. Before they left, Rana visited Olivia one last time. Together, the two women prayed for people to go to her family to tell them about Jesus. They also thanked God for his church. Rana said, I will never see my family again, but God has given me a bigger family now in his church. They are everywhere, and we will never be alone. I believe that Armand and Rana represent the majority group of believers for the last 2,000 years, those who have followed Christ have experienced exactly what Jesus said when he said, in this life, you, my followers, will have trouble. Paul wrote, if anybody wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he will be persecuted. We are the minority as American Christians in the fact that we do not experience open and rampant persecution yet in this country. And so First Peter enables us as we speak about this issue of living hope, the title of this series, to see that living hope manifests itself in dark days. The hope of the gospel comes to us in the midst of difficulties and trials. The pathway of salvation is a road of suffering that is inevitable in the Christian life. And so Peter is giving us a theology of how to understand suffering and its relation to hope, how to understand pain and its relation to our salvation, how to rightly respond as the people of God when we enter into those dark tunnels of our own lives. Today we're going to talk about the hope of victory in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning there in verse 8. If you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word, would you, would you do that now as we read these verses? So the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. 
Now he quotes from the Psalms and he says, For whoever desires to live, to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He goes on in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with his angel, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You can be seated. Father, as we walk through these scriptures today, Remind us of the hope that lives in us because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Remind us of brothers and sisters around the world today who literally lose houses and lands and families and jobs who are persecuted for righteousness, persecuted because they follow the righteous one. Lord, teach us to walk well in the kind of suffering that bears with it an eternal weight of glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Early church father Augustine said this. He said, if you love the good, you will suffer no loss. Because whatever you may be deprived of in this world, you will never lose God who is the true good. I'll let that sink in for just a minute. Jesus said much the same. If anyone loses houses or lands or family for my sake, he will find a hundredfold in the life to come. There's a place in the midst of suffering where God accomplishes things in the lives of His children that He can accomplish in no other way. We know that to be true from the example of Christ and also from the things that we see in these Scriptures this morning. It's interesting in verse 8 that we find out real quickly that the Apostle Peter was definitely a Baptist preacher because he gives the word finally only halfway through his letter. Now, this is classic Baptist preacher right here. And we like to say just one more thing, and then 20 minutes later, we're really drawn to the real close. That's kind of what Peter does here in, in verse 8. But I want you to see what he's doing here. He's giving us, us yet again some pictures that will help us in those days when suffering comes knocking at our door, when trials and temptations arise, when the promises of God that relate to the suffering of His people come to us. So three statements this morning, three encouragements as we consider our place in relationship to suffering, to trials and tribulations. First of all, verses 8 through 12 encourages us with this. Don't forsake the grace. Peter loves this theme of grace in the midst of this letter. In every chapter, there's at least, there's either an explicit mention of grace or it's implied in the background of what he's talking about. In verses 8 through 12, there's this implication of the grace of God. You have been given so much. Now remember, he's talking to a persecuted people. 
He's talking to folks who had lost their homes, who had been cast out by their loved ones, so those who had, been, had lost their jobs, who had lost any way to provide for themselves. They're now living scattered among that part of Central Asia that we now know as the country of Turkey. And, and he's speaking to them saying, basically, you've been given so much. Don't forget what you have in Christ. Yes, you have lost much. But what you've been given is so much Greater Grace is the gift of God, God's unmerited favor given to us at the cross. And he reminds them, first of all, that the believer's calling is to be a blessing. Look there in verse 9, he says, So do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, what? Bless. That's a command, by the way. Bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. It's a reminder once again of God's words to Abraham back in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham out of his paganism, out of his unbelief, and calls him to himself and says, Abraham, I've got some promises for you, and if you'll walk faithfully before me, I'm going to do some amazing things through you, through you and through your descendants. And Abraham believed God, and God accomplished those promises. God promised him a people. His his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. He promised him a place. This nomad would have a land of his own, a vast land. As he took him up on the mountainside and said, Look, as far as you can see, all those thousands of acres will belong to you and your descendants. And he promised him his presence. He promised him that he would not leave him or forsake him no matter what might come. But the reason for all these things is ultimately that Abraham might experience the blessing of God, which comes with a purpose. If I were to ask you this morning, do you desire to experience the blessing of God, surely every hand in the room would go up. We would be crazy to not put our hands up saying, yes, I want to experience the blessing of God. But you need to understand this morning that the blessing of God comes with a purpose. Abraham, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. That's my promise. But I'm going to bless you for a purpose, so that you might be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Rather than just being a recipient of blessing, Abraham was to be a channel of blessing. And as those who walk in Abraham's footsteps by faith, so too we are called upon, not just to be recipients of God's blessing, to hoard God's blessing, but to use the blessing of God to bless others. So what we've been given materially was not meant to make us healthy, wealthy, happy, and just to fill us up with all good things. But we were meant, we were given this financial prosperity in our country in order that we might bless others. God's blessing is given for the purpose that we might bless others in return. We will be blessed. Notice the, notice the verse again. For this you were called. Blessed, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So you've been blessed, so bless others so that you'll in turn be blessed. That's the pattern. There's a lot of blessing going on here, and it's all for a purpose, God's purpose. Let's look for a moment at the relationship between blessing and persecution. Don't forget as we walk through this, this was written to a persecuted people. He is speaking to people who have next to nothing and saying, be a blessing to those around you. They weren't to be looking for a handout, but to be looking to help others in the midst of what they were enduring. Let's look at Romans 12. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. This goes against the grain, doesn't it? This is not our inclination. 1 Corinthians 4, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Again, it goes against the grain, but this is what God is calling us to. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds about right, right? That seems to be the normal way of of human interactions. But he says, but I say to you. This is Jesus loves this pattern. You've heard it said, now I say to you. I'm getting ready to amp this thing up. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, that goes against the grain, doesn't it? We want to sock them upside the head. Jesus says, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So this connection between blessing and persecution, between suffering and salvation. We're seeing these things that don't seem to go together, and yet they do in light of the gospel, as we'll see before we finish today. 
And then he goes on to quote from David and from the psalmist David back in the Old Testament in verses 10 through 12. That's a quote from one of David's psalms. David wrote this psalm in the midst of a time of his own persecution. He was literally being hunted by the most powerful man in the land, King Saul. David had grown popular as a result of the defeat of Goliath. You remember that whole story? And, and that wasn't the, the end for David. That was just really the beginning of his rise to fame there in Israel. But Saul began to, be, to get jealous over David, began to get jealous that David was more popular than he was. And Saul set out to hunt down David and to take his life so that David would not take Saul's crown. And David writes here in the midst of this, these words... Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue. He writes that in the midst of being hunted for his life. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We see David was suffering for righteousness sake. He was suffering for the sake of righteousness. And for that, he was greatly blessed. And there's two types of suffering that we can experience. Sometimes we suffer because we're just plain stupid. That's just a reality of our world, folks. There's these things called consequences. We talk about them with our kids all the time. JD, when you whack your sisters with the plastic sword, there's going to be consequences. That is not suffering for righteousness sake, young man. That is suffering for your own stupidity. We've already told you. And, and so many times in our lives we experience suffering on some levels because of our own stupidity, because of our own sin, because we've been rebellious and disobedient to God, because we've not done things God's way. That's not what Peter's talking about here. So if you find yourself in a, in a place in life where you're suffering because of your own stupidity... There's some places we could address that. That's not what we're talking about today. This is suffering for the sake of righteousness. Suffering for doing good, not for doing evil. And what does Jesus say about that? Jesus says in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, this connection between blessing and persecution. That the path of our salvation is a path of suffering. There's this connection of these things that is necessary, not optional. I want you to understand today that if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, there comes with that a promise of suffering and persecution, of trials and of troubles. There's not two roads of, roads of Christianity here. But one where it's easy street and you just kind of float on until you get to heaven and the other that's really hard and you get, well, you get to pick path A or path B. No, there is a path A and a path B. One leads to eternal life. One leads to destruction. And Jesus said difficult is the way. Narrow is the way. Hard to find is the way. Harder to walk in is the way that leads to eternal life. Few are going to find it, but those who do will be blessed. And so he says there, don't forsake the grace. Remember what God has done for you. And he goes on from there. Verses 13 through 17, he says, and don't forgo the good. This is a call to action. You see, it's so easy. We get in times of suffering. Trials and tribulations rise up. And the temptation is to shrink back. The temptation is to go find somewhere to sit and to dwell and to hide out until this passes by. But the picture that he's given here in verses 13 through 17 is no, when persecution arises, when difficulties begin, that's the time to move out. That's the time to go forward. I want you to see what he's saying here. He first reminds us there's two kinds of suffering. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So there's two kinds of suffering. Those who suffer for doing good, those who suffer for doing evil. And then verse 15, a verse that many of us have heard, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared for what? To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. What he's summarizing in this paragraph is this. It's reminding us that even in times of suffering, we were created for good works. 
Ephesians chapter 2, you read it, it says, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, it's not of yourselves, and nothing that you, you didn't earn your salvation, you, didn't, you weren't just good enough or smart enough or not enough people liked you in order for you to be saved. No, it's the grace of God that saved you. But then verse 10 says, verse 10 says, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that you should walk in them. So you were not saved by good works, but you were saved for good works. Good works are not the root of your salvation, but they are the fruit of your salvation. Don't mis- misconstrue these things. Don't get the cart before the horse on this deal because it will bring you to destruction. You will never do enough good works to earn the favor of God. But He gives it to you freely, therefore enabling you to do good works in a way you never could have done them before. In this context of suffering, Folks who were persecuted, who were suffering because of the name of Jesus Christ and their faith in Him. This verse in its context means this. So you're being persecuted. And others see you that don't share your faith, see you losing your home, losing your job, losing your family. It seems if you're losing everything because of this Jesus that you claim to worship, and they see you still clinging to Christ. They see you still taking hold of your faith. They see you still rising up in the midst of that persecution and pressing on, and they come to you. That's the, that's the context of verse 15. And they come to you and they say, dude, what is the deal? Why have you not given up on Jesus by now? It doesn't look like your God is doing anything good for you. Because of Him, you've lost everything, and yet you still worship Him. And the question that comes is the question in verse 15. Why? Why do you continue to worship this God who seems to do nothing but be a curse in your life? Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for that. Church, when the diagnosis of cancer comes and you're clinging to your faith, they will ask you why. Why not just be angry with God? Always be ready to give an answer. When you miss out on the promotion because you talked about Jesus a little too much at the workplace for your boss's approval, and and they find that you're not bitter over that, but you're rejoicing that you were counted worthy to suffer for the name, to miss out on that promotion because you love Jesus more than your job. And they'll look at you and say, why aren't you mad? Always be ready to give an answer for that. Be ready to give an answer for this living hope that is in you, that you're looking forward to a reward that's greater than what there is in this world. When they roll their eyes, when they strike you, you turn the other cheek. When they persecute you, you bless them. When they come against you as your enemies and seek your life, you pray for them. Why? Because you're crazy, right? Just a little bit. There's a little bit of insanity in Christianity. You need to understand that today. There's a little bit of insanity in our faith that calls us to that which the world sees as utter foolishness. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. And so when they come to you and say, how do you endure? Why are you clinging to your faith when everything around you seems to be falling apart? Be ready to give an answer for that. Be ready to share the gospel. Tom Schreiner says, Peter assumed that believers have solid intellectual grounds for believing the gospel. The truth of the gospel is a public truth that can be defended in the public arena. Every believer should grasp the essentials of the faith and should have the ability to explain to others why they think the Christian faith is true. And I would say to you this morning, if you're following Jesus Christ and you would say, well, I don't know that I would be able to defend my faith. I just like feel that it's true. I would say to you this morning, love the Lord your God. Yes, with your heart, but also with your mind and with your soul and with your strength. The Christian faith is not primarily an intellectual faith, but it is an intellectual faith. You are called to love God with your mind so that you will know when those questions come. And they will come. If you're walking with Jesus, there will come a day when someone will come before you and ask, why do you continue to trust in this Jesus? 
go. Guess we needed a break there. Always be ready to give an answer. So you were created for good works, and also we see here believers suffer for righteousness sake. This is a take-home truth. You don't get to avoid this. I don't want to soft-sell the gospel to you this morning. If you come to follow Jesus, you will walk the road that He walked. He said, take up your cross and follow Me. And that didn't mean the pretty little gold one you wear around your neck. This would be the equivalent today of someone saying, take up your electric chair and come follow Me. Take up your lethal injection and come and follow Me. Again, it sounds just a little bit insane. There's a little bit of insanity in the gospel from the world's perspective. But it's necessary for a right understanding of what you're being called to. You are not being called to easy street followers of Jesus. Hear that today. That is not the calling upon your life. Following Jesus will be the most difficult thing that you will ever do. But it is more than worth it, as we'll see. Jesus went on to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. That's how you feel, right? When you're reviled, rejected, and persecuted, you go, Man, I feel really blessed right now. It's not about the feeling. Go on and listen to what he says. When they say, I utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad. Somebody stands nose to nose with you and speaks down to you and criticizes your faith. You just really feel ready for worship, don't you? Why rejoice and be glad? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You, When you enter into those moments, you are standing in a long line of giants of the faith. You're walking in the shoes of Paul and Silas who were imprisoned and beaten within an inch of their life because of their claims about Christ, because they were living their life for Christ. And they departed from that place and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. This is the call of Christ. The third admonition that we see in these scriptures today in this last paragraph. Don't forsake the grace. Don't Forgo the good works that accompany that grace. And finally, don't forget the gospel. Ultimately, this is what does it for us. Ultimately, when times of suffering come, when we enter into those dark tunnels of our lives, whatever form they might take, when the troubles and the trials and the tribulations come into our lives, this is ultimately what sustains us. It is not the power of positive thinking that will sustain you when your life falls apart. It just won't, folks. This this Oprah version of of just thinking the right things, just think nice thoughts, this is not what's going to do it. This is not click your heels and go home from Oz. But it's the reminder of the gospel, reminder of what saved you in the first place, that enables you to endure. So here in this paragraph, I'll just go ahead and tell you, this is the most disputed paragraph in the entire New Testament. I could have spent our entire, our entire time together in verses 18 through 22, and we would understand it no more than the folks who have been looking at this for the last 2,000 years wondering, what in the world was Peter talking about? So here's what I want to do. In our, in our last few minutes together this morning, there's, there's my finally, by the way. Uh, in our last few minutes together this morning, uh, what I want to do is this. Sometimes we come to difficult passages like this. I think the book of Revelation is an example of this. The last six chapters of the book of Daniel are the same way. We come to difficult passages, and it's very easy for us to miss the forest for the trees. You know that old saying? We, we get so focused in on a few uh, strange-looking trees, and we miss the grandeur of the forest that's being put before us. So what I want to do here is, I, in, in helping us, is I want to focus in on a couple of these strange-looking trees here in, in these verses, but then I want us to step back and see the fullness of what Peter was really trying to communicate. Don't miss the forest for the trees. But let's look at a couple of the trees for a minute. 
So these mysterious trees, there's some weird stuff here. I love what Martin Luther said, a great theologian. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. And when you look at it, you go, amen. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. And so your pastor is going to be in a long line of failures in terms of of explaining a couple of things that we see in this paragraph. Two questions. I'll put them on the screen for you. The first question, who are these spirits in prison that Peter is talking about in verse 19, 20? And secondly, how are we saved by baptism? Those are the two main questions, the two strange-looking trees in this forest that draw our attention. But again, we're going to see them in light of a bigger picture that is really the emphasis of Peter's teaching here. So let's start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Reminding us of our own suffering, it's better to suffer for good if it's God's will than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. By the way, verse 18 is a summary of the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell in verse 18. In which, here's where it starts to get a little bit weird. In which he, being Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And if there are giant question marks hovering over your head, you're exactly where you should be. What in the world is that about? So I'm going to tell you at least what I understand from this. I will by no means seek to explain to you something this morning that folks for the last 2,000 years much more learned and, and much more intelligent than myself, knowing the Word of God better than I will ever know it, have not been able to explain. But I'll tell you what I think we can know. First of all, who are the spirits in prison? When the word spirits is used, 99% of the time in the scriptures, when the word spirits is used, it rarely ever relates to human beings. It almost always is used of angels or demons. And I think that's what's happening here. When you look at it in its context, by the time you get to verse 22, he's speaking about Jesus being exalted over angels, authorities, and powers. And so that being the context here, I believe it's talking about Jesus making a proclamation basically to demonic forces. Now there's some relation here to the days of Noah. Again, what in the world do these guys have to do with the days of Noah? What we do know is this. The days of Noah were wicked days. God called upon Noah in the midst of wicked days to build an ark, to build a giant boat the size of multiple football fields in the middle of the desert. Now you think he got made fun of for that a little bit? By the way, some have said, how, does, how did Noah and his three sons build a boat that big? Well, they had 100 plus years to do it. Read the scriptures. You can do a lot in a century. There's one little, how do you, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you build an ark? You've got 100 years, you could probably figure it out. Plus, God gave him the plan, so that was good too. So, there were wicked days. Noah's building the ark. But the Bible also says, in the midst of building the ark, as others were making fun of him, Noah was also, the, the scriptures say, a preacher of righteousness. He was proclaiming to the people, I'm building this boat so that you might be saved. So they're making fun of him. Look at old crazy Noah out building that boat and leading his sons to build some crazy boat in the middle of the desert. We don't know what he's doing out there. He was, they were making a mockery of what God had called him to do. But he was preaching to them. He was proclaiming to them salvation through the ark. In fact, scholars will tell us there would have actually been, if you, if you do some of the math on this, there would have been plenty of room left in the ark for more people to have joined Noah and his family, but no one did. You know, we get these pictures from our nurseries of, of the ark with the, with the animals, the giraffe's head sticking out the side and it looks like they're crammed in like sardines in the can. Again, you study this and you begin to understand there was room left in the ark. Why? Because our God is a God of grace. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And they were offering a door of salvation to any who would take it. And folks, I can dare say, and for all those who made fun of Noah all those years, 
I'd say their mouths stopped about the time the water got to their ankles. And their mouths certainly stopped when the water got up over their heads. Noah was vindicated in his day. One who had been faithful to God for more than a century was saved through that ark, which Jesus said was a picture of our salvation. Fast forward to the days of Jesus, and now God is saving people through an entirely different piece of wood, much smaller but yet much more powerful. And just as they mocked Noah and his ark, so the world mocks Jesus and his cross. But it's the power of God for those who believe. So who are the spirits in prison? They relate to Noah, the wickedness of his days. And what is happening here that we can be sure of is Jesus goes to them at some point, some say between his death and resurrection, it's not really clear here, but Jesus goes to them proclaiming not a message of salvation. Don't misunderstand here. Jesus is not going to these spirits saying, let me give you another chance. No, this is a proclamation of victory. This is what a general does in Peter's day when he comes riding back into town with his forces, having been victorious over the enemy. The general would ride through town bringing the spoils of war. And when he got to the Acropolis, the highest point in the city, he would stand before the people and he would give a victory speech. That's what's happening here. This is not Jesus offering a second chance to those who who had acted in rebellion against God. This is Jesus proclaiming His victory at the cross. This is Him vindicating all that He had done on behalf of His people. There's a picture of power here and of victory here. And believers, Peter is trying to set before you a picture of what you have in Christ so that when the day of persecution comes into your life, When the day of suffering arises in your life, that you will look to your victorious king, your righteous general, who has already proclaimed victory over your foes, and you will rest in that. We'll come back to that thought. We also have this question, so how are we saved through baptism? Look at verse 21. So he's talking about they were brought safely through water, and then he just mentions baptism. Verse 21 which corresponds to this, it corresponds to the picture of Noah, that which destroyed the world also saved Noah, lifted him up, now saves you, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now again, there's some weird stuff here. Compare Scripture with Scripture and you'll find that the Bible never teaches that baptism is the way of salvation, we're saved by grace through faith. It's repentance and faith that brings salvation, not baptism. So what's Peter talking about here? Here's, here's the best way I can explain it to you. So I wear this ring every day of my life, and this ring symbolizes a relationship. And you all know that that's my relationship with my wife. Now if I were to take this ring and hand it to Connor Bland and say, Connor, would you put this ring on? Does that then make Connor married? No, it has no bearing on his marital status whatsoever because this ring is merely symbolic. I believe the same is true for baptism. I think what Peter is saying here is not so much that baptism saves you because he says it's not about the washing of dirt off your body. It's not what baptism actually does. It's what it symbolizes, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at it there in verse 21. It's what baptism symbolizes that gives it its power. The same thing with this ring. This ring in and of itself is nothing more than a round piece of gold. I could give it to anyone that I want. It won't have any power in your life. The same thing is true for baptism. If you get baptized and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's as good as Connor putting on this ring. It's foolishness. You just took a bath in church and that's kind of weird. But in light of that relationship, I wear this ring as a reminder of the love relationship I have with my wife. That's baptism, folks. It's a reminder of the love relationship that you have with Christ. That's why we practice what we call believer's baptism. Trusting Christ first, turning from sin and trusting in Christ, and then baptism becomes that picture. 
I fell in love well before I ever put this ring on, but a ring is a reminder of the love. You see it? That's baptism. This ring doesn't make me married. It doesn't even keep me married. In fact, I lost this ring for an entire year at one time at my in-law's house. It's a whole long story we won't get into. But I lost it for an entire year, and while my wife was a little upset with me about that, I wasn't unmarried because I didn't have my ring. Again, think about baptism. Baptism will not save you, but the power of the picture is important. And I would encourage you in it, if you've not followed the Lord in believers' baptism, I hope you see why that picture is so necessary and why, because, because of what it pictures. So let's talk about that before we finish today. Hebrews 11 speaks of Noah that we've already talked about. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, who was persecuted because of his preaching about what God was going to do, was saved and became an heir of righteousness. So those are the strange trees. Spirits in prison, Baptism. If I, haven't, if I haven't helped you at all uh, in understanding those verses, talk to my wife. She can work it out for you. All right. So the majestic forest is what I want you to see as we finish today. I want us to take a step back again. We've looked at some strange things in this paragraph. It's the most disputed verses in the entire New Testament. Uh, and I want us to take a step back now. I want you to see what Peter is really focusing on here. Don't get caught up in the spirits in prison and the, and, the, and the strange words about baptism. Take a step back and see in this paragraph the beauty of what he is displaying. Remember again, speaking to a persecuted people. Speaking to those who are going through trials and tribulations because of their faith, who are suffering for righteousness' sake, he writes these words. And what is he talking about? First of all, he says this. Never forget that the righteous one died for the unrighteous ones. If you are to suffer for righteousness' sake, it comes through this doorway. That Jesus Christ, the righteous one, suffered in the place of the unrighteous ones. For Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's the gospel in a nutshell, folks. We are staking our faith in the fact that a Jewish man 2,000 years ago was crucified on a Roman cross and that that crucifixion paid the penalty for our sins in such a way that we can be saved, rescued, given the gift of eternal life. That's what we're saying we believe. And the world says that sounds utterly ridiculous. What does a Jewish dude 2,000 years ago have to do with us in America today? And we respond. We give an answer to that. We say, He has everything to do with us because He's the King of glory. He has everything to do with us because He is our Creator who has become our Redeemer. He has everything to do with us. We proclaim Him, Paul says. We don't just proclaim some theological truths. We don't just proclaim some strange doctrines. Paul said, no, we proclaim Him. We proclaim Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous ones. That's the biggest part of this forest. But it also goes on to remind us of what happened afterwards, that He arose and He ascended. This is where our hope lies. Our hope lies in His resurrection. If Jesus is still dead in the grave somewhere outside of Jerusalem, then my encouragement to you is this. You need to leave this place and never return again. There is no purpose in the church if the body of Jesus Christ is still in the grave. That's why Paul goes to such lengths to show us the evidences for Christ's resurrection. That over 500 eyewitnesses saw Him after His death on the cross. And by the way, if you start to think that, well, maybe he didn't really die on the cross, understand, the Romans were experts at death. They had perfected crucifixion. And I guarantee you, they knew when you were dead. But he rose again. One of my favorite verses in the Scripture just reminds us, for our sake, 
he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, uh, to be sin, so then him we might become the righteousness of God. This picture of righteousness related to suffering. Here we see it again. So what do we do? Here's the take home for the day. What do we do as a result of what we've seen here? Pictures of David persevering under suffering. Pictures of believers in Peter's day persevering during suffering. Pictures of Noah persevering during suffering. What do we do? Pictures of Jesus enduring suffering for your sake. What do we do with this? Here's your take home for the day. We rest in the finished work of Christ while wrestling with sin and suffering in this world. Let me show you the balance. Because oftentimes we, we find ourselves doing one of those things without the other. And, and there's a tension here that you need to maintain in your walk with Christ. For some, we, we find ourselves majoring on the wrestling. We see the troubles of life and we are wrestling. We see the sin that remains in our lives and we are wrestling. And we, we find ourselves majoring on the wrestling but we're not resting in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're trying to make it all work out. We're trying to fix the things that are broken. We're, we're, the fixers among us, me being one of those in this place, we, we find ourselves so much wrestling that we're not really resting. And yet on the other side of the, of the spectrum, we find those who are really good at the resting. So much so that they're not doing anything with their faith. That's what Peter's calling us away from here. He's saying this is not a place where even in the midst of your sufferings that you just sit back on your heels and just wait till Jesus comes. By the way, read the book of 1 Thessalonians. He gives some folks some really hard instructions during those days. We're not just to be laying back until Jesus comes. We're to be working for the Lord. We're to be proclaiming the gospel. We're to be enduring during suffering, not just trying to hide out. There's an activeness here. And these two things go hand in hand with one another. Maintain this tension with one another in the lives of believers. We are resting in His finished work. By the way, when Jesus spoke His last words on the cross, they weren't, well, I'm almost done. What did He say? It is finished. And some of you in this room need to hear that today. Jesus spoke over your sin. If you're trusting in Him today, Jesus spoke over your sin in that moment. It's finished. Yes, there is still wrestling against sin. There is still running from sin. There is, there is still dealing with sin. But he said, it's finished. I've already done what's necessary for your salvation. So stop trying to work it out yourself. By the power of the Spirit, you do work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's not in your own power. You may have this question, why do I keep wrestling with this sin? Because you have yet to entrust yourself to the power of God. You have yet to surrender. You have yet to rest in His finished work for you. Or on the other side, you just spend all of your time resting and there is no wrestling. It's got to be both and. I know once again, it seems like how do these go together? How does suffering and salvation go together? How, 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 do, how do blessing and persecution go together the same way that resting and wrestling go together? In tension with one another, you find the gospel. And that's where I want to leave you this morning. Three scriptures that I hope will be an encouragement to you. First, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? One of Peter's favorite words for the church is this. Beloved. We're going to see it again next week in chapter 4. Beloved. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? And he goes on this long list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? By the way, it didn't stop there in verse 35. The list goes on and on until he finally says, I am convinced of this, that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So keep resting and keep wrestling. Romans 8, 35. James Chapter 1, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 
The relationship between blessing and persecution. Keep resting. Keep wrestling. Romans 9. And just as it is appointed for men once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those. Listen to how we're described. Those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I believe the, another translation says those who long for his appearing. So my encouragement to you, church, is this. Whether you find yourself in days of, of light or darkness, whether you find yourself in the best of days or the worst of times, the encouragement of the Scriptures is this. Keep resting in what Christ has done for you. Keep wrestling against sin and against the suffering that comes your way. In that tension, experience the beauty of the gospel that rescued you. Glory in that gospel. Fix your eyes upon your Savior. And when they come to ask you about the hope you're clinging to, be ready to give an answer and be ready to see some folks set free because God demonstrated His faithfulness through your faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we've covered a lot of ground today. We've seen some things that we don't know quite what to do with. And in this moment, I just pray for clarity. Lord, if we walk away with nothing else today, may it be this. That the righteous one suffered in the place of the unrighteous ones. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That there remains the promise of persecution and suffering, but the pathway of suffering leads to eternal glory. So give us a faith that endures. Give us a hope that grows stronger with each passing day. Whatever we find ourselves facing in these days, may we see that the hope of glory in which we are trusting is greater, more glorious, and will last until that day when faith becomes sight. And Lord, put deep within our hearts and within our minds and overflowing from our mouths the message of the gospel so that when others come asking about the hope that we have, we will be ready. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name as we pray and as we ask, Lord, lead us to the cross. Fix our eyes upon the Savior and do immeasurably more than all we ask or think according to your power at work within us. In Jesus. Last thing I'd like to say to you, church, is this. I know that many of you in this room right now, I look around and I see faces that are that are heavy burdened. Some of you have experienced loss this week. Some of you have gotten a, a bad diagnosis this week. Some of you are just heavy hearted and maybe you don't even really know why. I just want to encourage you in these two things. Keep resting and keep wrestling. Keep resting in what Christ has done for you. Keep coming back to the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. You are the beloved if you're in Christ. If He is your Lord and Savior, He will not leave you or forsake you. He has already given you more than this world could ever take. So rest in that. But also keep wrestling. Keep striving. Keep working. Keep proclaiming the gospel. I know it's unpopular. People don't want to hear about their sin, but they need to hear about their Savior. 
And so I encourage you, keep resting, keep wrestling. And in that tension, experience what it truly means to be the beloved. You are loved by God who created you, who causes your lungs to continue to inflate with air even now. And He encourages you today. Keep trusting Him. Keep wrestling. Keep resting and wrestling. Father God, help us today. As we leave from this place, Lord, we all encounter many trials and tribulations, many sufferings and pains. Lord, help us to carefully discern whether our sufferings are coming because of our sin or because of your righteousness. And Lord, may we know this week in an amazing and beautiful way what it means to be your beloved ones. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I'll be dismissed this morning.